Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I admit it. I confess. I've got a touch of what my guest today calls progressophobia. Ever since Charles Dickens got hold of me back in middle school and William Blake after that, I've been a little suspicious of the great onward march of science and technology. Gene therapy, healthy crops, safer, more efficient forms of nuclear energy, very nice, very nice. But what about eugenics, climate change, and Fukushima? For every problem human ingenuity solves, doesn't human nature create a new one on a bigger scale? Damn it, Spock, can your cold, calculating reason fathom the mysteries of the human heart? But you know what? After devouring all 453 pages and 75 graphs of psychologist Steven Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, I admit defeat. The defeat of defeatism. The man has done the math. Since the 18th century, things have been getting better in pretty much every dimension of human well-being. Health, safety, education, happiness, you name it. And we've done it with the most reliable tools we have available, reason, science, and enlightenment humanism. Welcome to Think Again, Stephen. Thank you. So you went pretty strong after a lot of my heroes. William Blake, uh, who else? Foucault. I'm not a Nietzsche fan, but why those folks specifically? What's this sort of neo-romanticism that you've been going well, I, I have nothing against William Blake. But, uh, <laughs> and of course, to, to be uh, against romanticism sounds just so uh, unromantic. It just sounds so nerdy or geeky or, or, or uh, unhuman. Um, but I, I do think that it's the individual that has the capacity to suffer or flourish. It's, it's people who feel pain and, and pleasure. That, of course, we're all parts of a culture. But there's a danger in uh, thinking of a human as just a uh, as a disposable cell in some larger body called a, a culture with a bloodline and a language and a culture and a tie to the soil. That was a movement that was uh, kind of tried in the 19th century leading up to fascism and, and uh, Nazism. And it's a much worse idea than universal human rights and universal human flourishing. And then also the postmodernist notion that all truth is just a tactic to uh, achieve power right. is inherently incoherent because you can always ask, well, is that statement true? And if it is, well, you've just conceded that there is such a thing as truth. And if you're not conceding that it's true, why should we take you seriously? So you can't get around truth and objectivity. Moreover, the spectacular success of science is proof, if we needed a proof, that rationality and the assumption that there is a, a truth that we can uh, approach uh, has been vindicated. We really have eradicated smallpox. We really have gotten to the moon. We really do have deep insights into the workings of life and the origin of uh, our species and countless other subjects. And so the critique, I guess, or the fear that constitutes the backlash against reason and science as guides to human behavior is that they themselves are not sufficient. Where do we get then humanism? I mean, yes, right. exactly. So it was quite by design that I didn't frame this book as a defense of science or even just as a defense of reason. But humanism is in that title. It's the final chapter. It gets pride of place because statements of fact are not the same as statements of value. Uh, means of getting logically from A to B don't tell you what the B should be. Right. And what the B should be is human flourishing, life and knowledge and health and happiness and richness of experience. 
experience and um, social uh, warmth, all the things that make life worth living. They're not hugely controversial. Uh, <laughs> but, right. uh, uh, and so that's plenty to go on. It's not as if you're kind of some sort of amoral nihilist if you don't accept the truths of, of religion or political ideologies. Uh, just the fact that we're human beings gives us much to live for and much to strive for. And I use the word humanism to capture the idea of a moral system without uh, a bunch of religious commandments. Would you say that there's room for and the possibility of significant disagreement between people on, on exactly the nature of those values, what they should be? Well, we, we know in, in, in history that there, that there has been. Right. Uh, people do argue, people fight. Right. I do think that when we learn from our mistakes, and I don't think anyone would argue that World War II was a good thing. Right. Uh, I think we all agree, you know, let's not do that again. Uh, and there's some things that no matter how heartfelt your belief is, you really can't hope to convince other people uh, of it. Like if your source of meaning and value is that um, to accept Jesus Christ as your savior. Right. Well, you, yeah, okay, you can accept that. But what happens now when you have to sit down with some people from you know, India and China and, and uh, Africa and, and, right. and then come to an agreement on how should we prevent World War II from happening again? Or what should we strive for? Well, you know, Jesus just isn't going to cut it because you're not going to be able to convince everyone else that this is the source of ultimate moral value. Likewise, if you, if you say, well, America is the indispensable nation and we have to have a world order in which, you know, we, where America is great again. Right. Well, you, you can say that, but, you know, France is not going to go along with you. Uh, now, what happens when you do try to get other people to go along with you, people in Japan and in France and, and in India? We might say, oh, geez, well, then, then it's kind of lowest common denominator. There's nothing that everyone can agree on. Well, that turns out to be false. Uh, because right. when humanity has tried, they have come up with pretty extensive lists like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, like the Millennium Development Goals, that when it comes down to it, there are not a whole lot of people who think that it's good for kids to be illiterate or to die before the age of five or to people to die of malaria or AIDS or for, or by and large for wars to be fought, notwithstanding the 19th century romantic militarism. But we kind of, uh, most of us kind of learned our lesson from, from that, the idea that there's something inherently noble, glory, spiritual, thrilling about war. Uh, right. Sounded okay before 1914. After that, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a, 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 a sick joke. So when humanity learns from its mistakes and when people of different backgrounds have to come together in agreement, it turns out that there is a pretty viable uh, moral system, a set of universals, not down to the last principle. Uh, still lots of scope for disagreement, like abortion, for example. Right. But a pretty large common denominator that comes from the fact that we're all human and uh, we all can reason almost by definition if we're sitting down and having this very conversation. You know, what, what are we doing? We're, we're reasoning. We're trying to persuade each other. And that's got to be possible. Otherwise, we would simply you know, fight about it or, or gather you know, posses and whoever has the biggest uh, gang of thugs wins. Uh, right. The fact that we're sitting together and presenting reasons and, and you're pushing back and I'm pushing back against you pushing back shows that we're committed to reason and all humans are capable of that. So I'm sure that you get or you would get a lot of pushback. I mean, I certainly see a lot of pushback in the culture right now of the sort that's like in American culture right now of the sort that's like, well, yeah, that's all very nice to say for people that are sitting in their comfortable New York studios or Harvard offices. But what about 
What about the people that are out here suffering? To that, you would say what statistics, right? Look at the look at the facts. Well, actually, or even let's let's go to the replay. Let's rewind the tape <laughs> yeah, and yeah, see, yeah. see what it was like in the 1970s when we had 15% inflation. Where if you could afford to pay the rent, you didn't know if you're going to be able to afford it uh, next year when rents went up 15% in your salary. You didn't necessarily. Right. The unemployment rate was much higher than it is uh, today. When people didn't have uh, health insurance, when elderly people, according to stereotype, were eating dog food because because uh, there was so much elderly poverty. Uh, so it's you know let let's not get seduced by uh, images of the good old days. Uh, we need if if not only statistics, even. Uh, depictions of what life was like at the time. And also, I think, and this is a note you strike throughout the book, I mean, it's possible for an individual, a group, to be suffering in a way that they were not in the past. For example, the American lower middle class economically. There is, there is certainly a, a sector of the American population now that is um, by many means worse off, and these are predominantly middle-aged, white, less educated, more rural, predominantly men, male um, sector of the population that has been the primary set of victims of the opioid epidemic. They've had higher rates of uh, unemployment, higher rates of suicide, uh, just lower rates of well-being in general. Right. And they have, an, indeed, a reversal of the general lengthening of lifespans that has characterized almost everyone throughout the 20th century. In general, progress is a tough sell. Why? Like, what's the P yeah. what is progress's PR problem? Why? Why aren't we all, you know, especially those of us who are doing okay? Why aren't we happier about it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I think part of it is that we are uh, unduly influenced by. Um, gory images from, from the news. And as long as problems haven't vanished off the face of the earth, there'll always be enough um, wars and zones of, of uh, poverty and unhappiness to, to feature in the news. Right. This opens up a space for um, media entrepreneurs who will generate violence that doesn't cause a lot of damage but gathers a huge amount of attention, namely terrorists and rampage shooters. Right. And they, just by design, distort our feelings of, uh, of uh, safety, even if we continue to be very safe from, from terrorists just statistically. They generate a spectacle of violence that makes it seem as if we could be the next victims. We have this, uh, is it called availability bias? That is, you know, whatever is the most recent thing that we've heard about? That's right. The mm -hmm. uh, availability bias or the availability heuristic Heuristic. is the rule of thumb identified by the psychologists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman as a, a major way in which the human mind assesses risk and probability. Namely, uh, we, we rack our minds for examples, the first examples that pop into mind. Uh, that gives us our understanding of how the, how the world is working. Um, so if oh, we've seen a terrible thing happen in the news yesterday, we're we're likely to default to that. That's right. So that you, people think that uh, in the Midwest, you're likely to be uh, killed by a tornado. Um, but you're much, in fact, you're much more likely to be killed by an asthma attack. <laughs> but uh, but they, they don't make the news, whereas tornadoes do. There's also a kind of moral stature or gravitas that attaches to the social critic. Right. Uh, someone who reminds us of terrible things we may have overlooked. Uh, it's almost as if we were, were grateful to them for uh, increasing our list of hazards to watch out for. And those people tend to be seen as serious and engaged, whereas people who point out how far we've come 
even if they're just reading out the data, uh, they're often dismissed as starry-eyed naifs and Pollyannas uh, trying to sell you something. Uh, and there's something about our moral ascriptions to other people that tends to overvalue the uh, the profit of doom. Well, fear focuses the mind wonderfully. And, you know, when the sad music comes on in the movie, we all sit to attention. Uh, we do, or the, the ominous foreboding music, uh, right. maybe even more so. That, yeah, uh, I guess that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the, there is this quality of, oh, wow, what's going on? Now I should listen. And I, I guess that would result in a better memory for the negative prophecies as well. Very much so. And it opens up a, uh, a kind of cheap gimmick if you want to be a prophet of doom. Namely, <laughs> you scour the headlines for everything that's going wrong at the world at, at a given moment. So you find, you know, there's going to be a war somewhere. There are terrorist attacks somewhere else. There are maybe a lo local epidemic uh, somewhere else, you know, an, an Ebola outburst. And you put them together in a list, and it's always going to look as if civilization is teetering on the, on the brink of collapse. Right. But of course, you don't have the list that is much longer and much more boring of countries that are not at war or cities that have not been uh, <laughs> uh, shot up. Right. Those don't make for compelling narratives, but they do make for reality. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm not sure what the obvious remedy for that tendency is at this point. I mean, you're, a book like yours, I found it extremely compelling and important, and I read the whole thing. But in a climate of, you know, quick media bursts where people are tending to pay attention to whatever, you know, bleeds or moves quickly, I, I don't know how you, you know, overcome that at scale. I mean, it seems yeah. like, you know, according to your book, it seems like in a way we maybe don't need to because things are kind of getting better anyway. But No, we, we really do need to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because uh, electoral politics is affected by perceptions. We saw that most dramatically in the 2016 American presidential election, where uh, Donald Trump ran on a campaign that the cities are infested with crime and there are no jobs and the schools are failing and uh, we're, we're all liable to be killed by terrorists and no one has any jobs anymore, all of which are pretty much out of touch with reality. But ironically, abetted by narratives coming from the left that uh, the economy is wrecked and that we're living in a, in a dystopia of inequality and police shootings and terror. Terrorism. And the perception that society is spiraling out of control can lead people to want to destroy existing institutions, figuring or, or at least stand by as they are dismantled on the assumption that uh, no amount of tinkering has made us better off or has the hope of making us better off. Right. And so I think there is a, a need to not put a happy gloss on things, but to identify areas in which we have made progress so that we don't take for granted the institutions that were responsible for them. I don't think it's an impossible job, although I agree with you that there's a lot in our kind of narrative instinct that pushes against it where we want to. At least we can't avoid paying attention to the gloomiest stories. But there are, there are several genres of rhetoric and, and journalism that um, correctly point out the progress we've made. There's a whole category of listicles. If you, if you wanted to mention a couple of those things that you mentioned in your book, places where people can look. Like yeah, so there are websites like uh, ourworldindata.org, uh, organized by Max Roser, humanprogress.org by Marianne Tupi. And uh, one of the most entertaining is the site called Gapminder, originally founded by the Swedish doctor Hans Rosling, who's right. something of a TED star. is not totally obscure because he had fantastically entertaining TED Talks, entertaining both because he had 
colored animated graphs showing the way the world is improving in, in lifespan and in affluence. But he was a, uh, a showman who would, it was not beneath him to say swallow a sword at the end of a lecture <laughs> right. to, to get the world's attention uh, and to use humor and to tweak experts for how systematically pessimistic they were by comparing them unfavorably to chimpanzees. Because <laughs> <laughs> chimpanzees guess at random, whereas the experts are all too pessimistic. And, and I, I, I'm going to interrupt and say yeah. that you actually quote a couple of amazing comedy excerpts from Louis C.K. and also Amy Schumer. And also Amy Schumer. So humor is another. Humor is another. Great that, way that's of right. With this. Uh, yeah. Louis C.K. had the routine: everything is uh, amazing and nobody's happy. Right. Uh, yeah, and there are politicians who've mastered the art of instilling optimism without seeming complacent, and that's always the hazard for a politician. Right. They would seem to be you know, out of touch or you know not in touch with people's pain. But you know, Barack Obama succeeded. He was elected to two terms. On the other end of the political spectrum, Ronald Reagan was uh, famously optimistic. Right. Uh, and, and so there is an art of uh, being reasonably upbeat without seeming to be callous or oblivious. Entertainingly optimistic and convincingly so. That's, that, that, that would be the challenge. <laughs> so, and what would you say to the claim or the general belief or impression that, you know, governments, particularly the U.S. government, are becoming more and more... I don't know, layered with bureaucracy, more and more entrenched, more and more overcomplicated and entangled with business to the point where, you know, and th this is the same claim that is made of about multinational corporations that were sort of moving, progressing historically in a direction where you have these kind of vast systems that somehow work against change or somehow, you know, take us farther away from the principles on which on which at least, say, a democratic government was founded. We have to be vigilant against abuses of corporate power or government power or sheer government uh, inertia and bureaucracy of you know, vast cadres of bureaucrats just keeping themselves in, in work while sucking up tax dollars and not benefiting anyone. And that unquestionably happens. But we also, especially when in um, a country, the United States, where an entire political faction, the Republican Party, has campaigned against the ability of government to do anything. Ironically, often having <laughs> a betting government carrying out the interests of, of, uh, of moneyed uh, contributors and moneyed donors, and that, of course, is another grave danger. But I think there's been uh, a failure on the left and the center left to identify cases where, where government has succeeded. And they've almost unilaterally disarmed and given the debate over to the right with their anti-government rhetoric. And it's good to be skeptical of government, for sure. But government actually has uh, accomplished things that we should be proud of and that we should point to if we want to keep them, rather than simply accusing people of being evil if they uh, oppose the government, such as control of pollution. The fact that since the EPA was founded in 1970, uh, the United States has gotten richer. Uh, Americans have driven more miles. We've um, used more energy. Uh, but the five major categories of air pollution have gone down. So right. we've had our cake and eaten it. Like poverty. The, uh, there's a, a famous wisecrack by Ronald Reagan. Some years ago, the government declared war against poverty, and poverty won. <laughs> that turns out to be false. If you measure people's well-being in terms of what they can afford to buy or in terms of how much money they have after government taxes and transfers, social security, earned income tax credit, and so on, poverty has fallen by a lot. 
Now, why isn't anyone crowing about this and saying, well, let's not be so quick to dismantle government programs. If without it, people would be much worse off. No, I mean, I guess I guess what I'm getting at is the critique that was raised initially during the short-lived Occupy Wall Street movement, which was this idea that somehow the systems were becoming vast and complicated beyond our ability to reform them. I mean, you said, you know, certainly we should pay attention to what's going on. Certainly we should hold people to account for corruption. But the idea that opacity had reached a point where where it was going to be impossible to do that. And people were feeling out of touch in that way with, with yeah, the systems. Yeah, certainly we need a greater perception that uh, that government and corporations aren't working for the interests of some tiny minority. They, they ought to be more democratic, both in appearance and in reality, of course. But if the mindset, though, is that this is a uh, enormous machine that we're uh, helpless to resist, then why even bother with reforms like Dodd-Frank or making finance more transparent, more stable. Uh, if you just think there's this evil system and resistance is futile, then then you won't resist. Whereas uh, there's no uh, guarantee that we'll have a system that's ever perfectly stable. Right. But we can eliminate some of the worst risks, and that that's the place to start. And it's with a conviction that reforms can make a difference, even if they don't deliver utopia, that they're, sure. they're very much worth trying. Yeah, no, I mean, the last thing I'll say on this, because I am convinced, actually, by I can think of no argument in your book that didn't convince me, honestly. But, for example, when it comes to public protests, protests in the street, right, there is this perception that there was a time in American history, say, Vietnam, when you could pour into the streets protesting something, and that actually made a real and almost immediate cultural political difference. There are people still protesting things, right? But we also, many of us, I think, have the sense that that's been kind of subsumed into the kind of media refracting crystal that just takes the power right out of it. Like, okay, all these people protested. This organization says it was 100,000. This organization says it was 500,000, you know, and then the protest is over and the, you know, the people that were that we're being critiqued kind of go on business as usual, it seems. Yeah, I think we need a, a systematic understanding of when protest movements accomplish uh, worthy aims. The obvious case was in the United States was the civil rights movement. And there, there were concrete goals like eliminating Jim Crow and enacting the Voting Rights Act, which were, once, once they were stated, they were almost so irrefutable that the people who were opposing them just started to f be more and more marginalized. You had a kind of an accumulated support just because it was so obviously uh, in the right. Uh, there are other cases where the, the protest either was completely ineffectual, like Occupy Wall Street, which accomplished nothing. Right. And the reason is it did not have any coherent agenda. It was a kind of outburst of rage against a whole variety of, of uh, left-wing outrages. Uh, but it, didn't, it wasn't a movement for you know, Dodd-Frank or for particular reform acts. And also, because it was so concentrated on street theater and so little on the machinery of political change, of how do you uh, increase voting turnout? Uh, how do you right. put pressure on politicians? That it was totally outflanked by the uh, Tea Party movement in terms of actually changing the country. So it just needed more hard-headed political tactics as opposed to symbolic uh, expressions of outrage. The protests against Vietnam were something of a mixed bag because in uh, 1968, the outcome of the election was that Richard Nixon won. And he, right. partly out of 
his campaign of law and order. He managed to co-opt the issue away from the Vietnam War and toward the disorder and violence and chaos at home. And that was a terrible outcome because it prolonged the war by a number of years. An an additional 20,000 Americans died, perhaps an additional million Vietnamese. So it's very hard to rewind the tape of history and say how the protests should have unfolded. And we're still dealing with the legacy of mandatory drug sentencing and so on, which in some ways were the result of Nixon's campaign against drugs and society falling apart. Yes, right. So it's uh, the, the, Prisons the backlash. Prisons overcrowded, et cetera. The, the, the backlash against popular movements, if they are seen as as coming from a, a, a minority, if they're seen as you know scruffy hipsters and the vast majority of people don't feel any solidarity, then it's possible that they, they can backfire. In the time that remains to us, let's move to the second part of the show, which is where we're going to watch a surprise video clip from a past interview that our producers have chosen. This one is Vivek Wadwa, and uh, we've been asked to watch just two minutes of it, and let's, let's see what it's about. Okay. Despite what the uh, optimists say, despite what Silicon Valley says, I don't see a scenario in which we'll have enough jobs for human beings that yes, there'll be new jobs created. Zumba dances and God knows what else, all these, these stupid examples that uh, tech moguls throw up about the new jobs that'll be created. The fact is that these Uber drivers, these taxi drivers in New York City, the, even the Uber drivers that we have here now, when their jobs get displaced, there aren't gonna be new jobs for them. The truck drivers, we're talking about three million truck drivers just in the United States. When we have self-driving trucks, which is very likely in the next five years or so, those middle-aged truck drivers who don't have other skills than driving are not going to be able to learn how to program robots or how to do Zumba dancing. Those truck drivers will be unemployed. We're talking about people whose livelihood depends on jobs, whose social stature depends on jobs. I mean, you know, think about it. When we meet each other, the, the, almost the first question we ask is, what do you do? We're defined by our jobs, and we take pride and creativity in, in our work, and our lives revolve around our work. What happens when the work disappears? Even if you have you know, all the energy you want, all the food you want, you have perfect health, you have all the things you need, you're able to 3D print your, your food and clothing and all that, if you have all of those things taken care of, you have nothing to do. You feel depressed. What's the new social structure over here? What do we do with ourselves? So Silicon Valley talks about universal basic income. That's their excuse for saying it's someone else's problem, it'll be okay, let us get filthy rich and let someone else worry about the problem. We can just give money to everyone. No, people just don't want money, people want a purpose in life. They want to be contributing to society, they want to be doing good, they want to be, be uh, earning their keep. They don't want free money. So, you know, I had the physicist uh, Michio Kaku on the show the, oh, yeah. the, the, the other day, and I brought this up to him and his response was, well, we don't have blacksmiths anymore and we're not crying about that. But I think that the blacksmiths might have been crying for a little while. And the question is, I mean, how do we manage these if we're not going to fight progress entirely, which seems like a bad idea? How do we manage these transitions in a way that you know, does the least harm to us. It's a profound issue for 21st century 
economies how to cope with the unquestionable benefits that automation could bring, namely that you have machines doing work that is dangerous and boring and that humans shouldn't be doing in the first place, and that deliver more of what people want, more, um, more goods, more services, uh, without necessarily someone toiling to provide them for someone else. So in the, in the long run, this has to be a good thing. Right. The question is, how do we avoid the displacements that people uh, who so far have uh, specialized in these occupations uh, will, will now be uh, out of work? I think the answer can't be, let's freeze the economy with what we have now. Uh, it means that we're poorer than we have to be. And a lot of these are, are, are pretty rotten jobs. The idea that it should be a goal to preserve coal mining jobs <laughs> right. just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and we also know that economies are, uh, certainly over the long run, have been far more dynamic than we might have given them credit for. We don't have switchboard operators and we don't have wheelwrights and but it hasn't led to massive unemployment. In starting in the 70s, there was a massive influx of women into the workforce, but it was not the case that every woman who uh, got a job displaced one man. It's easy to overestimate the pace uh, at which jobs will be automated. Even when the famous example of uh, truck drivers, the newer assessments say it's going to be a while before we have point-to-point -point, uh, self-driving trucks. That right. It may be that uh, on the freeway, the, the truck will automatically change lanes. But to get it from the loading dock onto the freeway and from the freeway to the loading dock, you're still going to need a, a person at the, the wheel for some, some time, at least according to some estimates. But I think we, we, to the extent that we can decouple having a good life from having a good job, right. that will make the transition not as painful for uh, individuals and, and for society. So it's absolutely insane to have someone's uh, health insurance tied to their, their job. Now, it's a, a quirk of the American system, but no one would design it that way from scratch. And that should, probably should also be true for unemployment benefits, for retirement. There's some things that when we saddle companies with providing these social services, we make it harder for them to be good companies. We make it harder for people to live a decent life. And we probably put a drag on the dynamism of the economy. So the government, governments can do a great deal in terms of easing these transitions. You also mentioned universal basic income briefly in the book. Go yeah, ahead. there's a, f a family of proposals from universal basic income, government just mails everyone a check, to uh, something more like a negative income tax, just as if you earn over a certain amount, you write a check to the government. If you earn under a certain amount, the government writes a check to you, just to kind of uh, top up your, your income, reward people with jobs, but acknowledging that the marketplace may not value individual skills and effort enough to provide a large numbers of people with a, uh, a decent uh, income. Right. And we already have one. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. Right. And despite the fact that all of these proposals have a seem like they might have a vaguely socialistic aroma that might seem to be poison in the American context. <laughs> As it happens... Uh, You're these, from Canada, right? Well, I'm from Canada. Yeah, yeah. But it turns out that uh, there's a surprising support for this uh, among sectors of the, of the uh, right, including the mm. famous libertarian economist Milton Friedman, now uh, the libertarian social analyst Charles Murray. Uh, Richard Nixon toyed with the idea in the 1960s. The state of Alaska, one of the most conservative states, you know, home of Sarah Palin, has <laughs> a kind of universal income from a sovereign wealth fund from the state's oil revenues. So it can be depoliticized, de-socialized, kind of. Right. And uh, it's still not trivial to implement because you still want people to have an incentive to work. You um, still want to have an incentive for people to 
take risks. It's still going to cost money, and the rich may resist it. Right. So it's by no means a, a trivial policy change, but it is one that we're not going to be able to avoid just because even to have the most dynamic possible capitalist, technologically driven economy, we're going to need ways of cushioning the effects on uh, individuals in a way that's going to prevent people from becoming you know, Luddites and isolationists and mercantilists and to try to wrench right. the economy back. And when you talk about sort of decoupling human meaning or the meaning of a life from work, what would that look like? Would that look like a- ancient Athens? Would we? Yeah, we do. We, <laughs> we really don't know. It may mean, though, know, it could mean effect opportunities for uh, effective altruism. For uh, you know, what if if uh, underemployed people or unemployed people tutored kids in a village in Africa over the internet? Yeah, uh, or helped in carbon capture by planting forests, planting seedlings in large swaths of land uh, where we would really like to have carbon-hungry trees. Part of it is that it may not even be having the government so much write everyone a check, but having the government pay people for work that the society as a whole really wants done, but that no individual is on the hook to pay for. And sort social. of like the w, WPA back yeah. in FDR's time. Yeah. yeah, a modern, perhaps a modern version of the uh, the WPA that it would also have the advantage that people would have meaningful work. It's just that there aren't individual customers for it. It may be that the country as a whole is the customer. Got it. So the production team has asked me to ask you what other thinkers, um, you know, on these subjects that you would recommend that people take a look at as well, oh, besides um, your absolutely wonderful book, Enlightenment no, Now. <laughs> well, certainly it's at the stratospherical level of the kind of overall arc of human progress, the physicist David Deutsch, in his book, mm. The Beginning of Infinity, was certainly one of my inspirations. I, I took uh, as one of my epigraphs a quote from his book, uh, whatever is not ruled out by laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. And, and he steps back from kind of hurly-burly of, of day-to-day issues and uh, gives the lie to a lot of pessimistic scientists who think that this is our final century uh, or that um, humanity is some kind of execrable scum on the, <laughs> on the, on the planet. Uh, it's a real humanistic, uh, optimistic uh, overall view. In the tradition of other optimistic proponents of science like Jacob Bernofsky, the mm-hmm. uh, author of uh, the wonderful series, The Ascent of Man, Karl Popper, the author of The Open Society and Its uh, Enemies, a kind of scientifically guided humanism and, and uh, rationalism. All right. And finally, I wanted to ask you, in your capacity as a linguist, what you think of a term I invented about five years ago in honor of you, um, philosopho. Meaning the hairstyle <laughs> that is sported by certain individuals like yourself. I, I would. I get, who else would I put in that category? Einstein maybe was the pioneer there. Margaret Atwood possibly. Malcolm Gladwell back in the day. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can get it into the American Heritage Dictionary. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen Pinker. It's been a delight having you on Think Again, and thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to join and continue the conversation, find us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. It's a private group. You can request to join and I'll let you in and we'd love to talk to you there. And we'll be back next week with the author Neil Gaiman. Hope you can join us for that.